Better Buildings for Humans is sponsored by Advanced Glazings, makers of the Solera line of products. Solera is the leading glass glazing made specifically for architectural daylighting and with extreme thermal insulation performance. Learn more at advancedglazings.com. All right. Well, welcome to the Better Buildings for Humans podcast, where we talk about all things related to building occupant comfort, wellness, health, and uh, of course, sustainability. And today's guest is Alejandra Menchaca. Ale, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm extremely excited to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, Ale is one of the principals and founders of Airlit Studio. Um, she's had an amazing career, and we're gonna we're gonna um, start by learning a little bit about that. So, so your your, your website at Airlit Studio says that you're a rocket scientist who veered off course to address the climate crisis. Tell us how a uh, rocket scientist came to do the kind of work you do now, and and tell us a little bit about what that work is. Yes. So um, I'll just say there are plenty there. I've actually bumped into many people who used to be rocket scientists, or I guess who are, but have switched to sustainability. So I'm not the only one, even though it sounds surprising. Um, I grew up uh, born and raised in Mexico City, wanting to be an astronaut. Uh, For those of you who are old enough to have seen Apollo 13. Apollo 13 is actually a movie that convinced me that I wanted to be an astronaut to the dismay of my parents. Um, And um, and so I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I did an exchange term when I was an undergrad in McGill in Canada, where I got to do orbital dynamics and rocket propulsion and all that. And I was like, this is my future. This is what I want to do. Fast forward, so Mexico does not have an aerospace program uh, or educational, so an educational program uh, or aerospace engineering or anything like that. And so I opted for mechanical engineering and then got accepted into MIT, which was extremely exciting, uh, and then did my master's in aerospace engineering, training astronauts, basically, which is as cool as it gets, frankly. I focused on cognitive, on the cognitive science of training astronauts, which was fascinating. At the same time, there was this little thing in me that started to bubble up uh, with respect to the environment, which I guess was always there, but I never thought I was particularly passionate about it until I did become passionate about it. I would ask, I was the student who would ask in the propulsion class, so have we thought about cleaner fuels? And this is a while ago where that conversation wasn't even, you know, starting to happen. And people would say, well, there, there, there aren't as many rockets, right? So no, we don't care about that. Um, and that bothered me. Uh, the cost of it all bothered me. I felt that we could be doing so much more for the planet for the, the same cost of, um, of certain missions. And, um, and so even though I was I fully support space exploration, I realized that I kind of wanted to be more connected to Earth in a way. <laughs> and so that's how I ended up choosing. So for my PhD, I decided to go back to mechanical engineering, which was my original expertise. Uh, found um, a lab that was outstanding that combined uh, civil engineers, um, architects and mechanical engineers in the same space. And so I got to learn more about what others did on top of the mechanical engineering piece. And uh, 
more interestingly, I joined a research project that focused on natural ventilation in specific. And having grown up in Mexico City, I also thought that natural ventilation was a default around the world. And it isn't, sadly. Um, And so I became more passionate about that than I thought I was again. And uh, spent five years working on natural ventilation. Um, I I was lucky enough to become a consultant at the same time. So we were hired, my lab was hired um, as a consultant for a project in Tokyo, a couple of projects. Actually, we did three projects in Tokyo, um, naturally ventilated. So I got to travel to Tokyo and see these buildings and see how, you know, in another large city, natural ventilation is pretty common. And and so it kind of became, became my passion. So that's how I ended up in, in, you know, on the sustainability front, the passive design front. And now I have become much more than that after, after graduating, definitely focused more on, on thermal comfort, uh, indoor quality per se, uh, and other aspects of building performance. Um, but yes, uh, still a rocket scientist at heart, but happy to be focused on building these days. That is truly an amazing journey, uh, truly an amazing, amazing and inspiring journey as well. Now, I, I want to talk about natural ventilation. I don't know as much about it as I should. Um, could, could you explain the basics, like the very basics yeah. of how natural ventilation works? Totally. So there are two main kinds. So natural ventilation means driving air through a building using natural forces. That's the main definition. There are two main natural forces that one can use. One of them is wind, which I feel is the most known, um, least used. Uh, And then the other one is called buoyancy, which is the temperature difference between the hot air that is inside of the building and the cold air that is outside. And so for wind-driven ventilation, it's very simple in a way. The wind blows on a building facade on one side of the building and on the other side, the leeward side, it will create a suction or a negative pressure. And so if you open windows on both ends, you're going to have a pressure difference. Basically, the wind will push air on one side, would suck it on the other side. And so you will have airflow through your building. Um, buoyancy is, is really, it's much more interesting, I would say, a little bit more complex, but, but really what we should be designing for, which is the temperature difference between inside and outside. So the inside is warmer than the outside, which is why we want to use natural ventilation to cool it. Hot air goes up and cold air goes down. And so what happens is um, you, the moment you open two windows that are vertically spaced, um, you're going to have cold air. I'm going to pause because I'm going to give you an analogy that is very useful that I tend to teach uh, my students, but also architects that I work with. I think of buoyancy-driven vent- natural ventilation as um, cold air or water filling in a building and hot air of, or air leaving a building. So if you think about a building that you submerge into a bathtub full of water, right, and then you mm-hmm. open its windows, you can start imagining the cold air flooding the building in and the bubbles of air leaving the building. Natural ventilation is a little bit like that. And so The cold air is like water. It comes in and really floods a space. And then the hot air is like the air in a bathtub. It will push to leave the building through the top. And so buoyancy-driven ventilation is driving air through two vertically spaced openings, basically, where you take advantage of that temperature difference. 
Okay. Now, are there parameters on that, LA? Like, uh, uh, is it, you know, how is it too, when is it too cold? When is it too hot? Yeah. Right. What, what are the sort of uh, boundaries that, uh, so we designed a, a couple of things. So there are parameters in the building geometry that will influence how much you can use natural ventilation. So if you look at the climate, for instance, if you are in, let's pick Boston, it's mm -hmm. really cold half of the year. Mm -hmm. So cold that you really should not be bringing outside air in without preheating it. Um, you can't use natural ventilation then. It's hot and humid a couple of months. If it's too humid, you can't bring fresh air in either because you might create mold issues, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so the climate, just by looking at the climate without even having designed a building, you can tell what your bounds are. You can tell that you're up for maybe 30% of the time in Boston, but maybe 80% of the time to 100 in, in, in San Francisco in certain areas in California. Right. Um, and so that defines your bounds. That doesn't mean that you are going to have that. You still need to design your building for that. Um, how you design it depends on a couple of things. What indoor temperature you want to have. And so, for instance, um, on a typical building, you definitely don't want the temperature to drop below, let's say, 68 or 70. You don't want it to go above 76 or 78, depending on, on, you know, on the client and on the purposes of what the building is being used for. Um, I did work on a substation and naturally ventilating an electric substation in California where the thresholds were totally different because we didn't have people in them. We had machines and the machines have different temperature tolerances and I'm actually much more tolerant to heat than a human would be. And so if we're designing the natural ventilation system in an electric substation, then your temperature thresholds are different. And so when is it adequate to bring fresh air in is a different time of the year than in a building where you would need different indoor temperatures, if that makes sense. And so the outdoor temperature and the humidity changes a little bit depending, the requirements change a little bit depending on, on what your, your interior needs are, if that makes sense. It does. And then finally, you do want to make sure that you're sizing your openings properly, right? And so I could have a building in San Francisco, which is one of the most perfect climates in the U.S. to have natural ventilation. But if you don't put windows in it, you're not going to get any flow, right? And so putting a building in San Francisco doesn't make it naturally ventilated. If you put one, one window in an entire building, that's not going to work either. Natural ventilation is much more than adding windows. It's putting them in the right places. And so the design of natural ventilation really starts to involve where do you put the windows, how large do you make them, how tall do you make them, and how do you play with the wind and buoyancy to do that. I have to dive a little deeper on that. If yeah. you have occupants that are close to the windows, oh, right, yeah. to the inlet and the outlet, are there comfort issues that you have to take into account for, for those occupants? 100%. Yes. And so within the interior conditions, I went really broad on what roughly indoor temperatures we want. But there is also there are other two thresholds that we designed for. One of them is the maximum temperature difference that we want to allow between the window and that perimeter area where certain occupants would be sitting and the core of the building or the farthest out from that window. Um, you definitely don't want that to be more than nine degrees Fahrenheit at an extreme. We'll typically design to be a little bit less than that. 
Um, and so you can't, I always say you can't quite naturally ventilate a dance club in Alaska, right? And so even though you have lots of heat inside and the outside air, if you mixed it with the inside air, it would, would give you the right temperature. Mm-hmm. It would be really, really cold. If you brought in, people would be very, very uncomfortable if you brought in freezing or sub-freezing air um, yep. into, into the space. The other variable that comes in is draft and airspeed. The air, even though you calculate how many liters per second or CFM you need to have in the space to keep a particular temperature and a minimum indoor quality, your window or your opening needs to be sized so that the air doesn't come in too fast. Um, The rule of thumb is that at 180 feet per minute, uh, the air will start to blow papers off desks. And so you definitely want to avoid that. And so you need to design your buildings, your windows to be large enough so that you don't exceed that speed. 180 feet per minute is roughly one meter per second. Um, And so you definitely want to avoid that. And so we have had designs where we're getting the right airflow. We place the windows in the right place, but the inlet is too small. And so it's causing too much draft. If you're designing, you could be designing um, a building that is only going to be night ventilated, night flushed, it's called. So Mm -hmm. there's certain climates like Boulder, for instance, where even in the summertime, it's like really nice and cool at night. So you can flush your building at night and keep it cool. And so when people come in, you close the windows. Um, If you're doing just that, then your requirements for indoor comfort are a little bit more flexible. It could be a little colder than usual at night because there won't be any occupants, right? And so it really depends on what occupancy you have. But yeah, you're right. The the temperature difference within the space is also extremely important. One more question, then I'll I'll, I'll leave you alone on natural ventilation. Um, I I assume there's got to be some evidence that shows that people are healthier in buildings with natural ventilation. yeah. Yeah. There is, so there's a wealth of evidence that shows that. Um, I will put an asterisk to that and saying that outdoor air quality needs to be adequate in order for natural ventilation to be successful. Um, As someone who grew up in Mexico City, this is a concept that has been hard to adapt into my life because I've always thought that even if the outdoor quality is not great, you could still open a window. Um, But other than that, Yes, natural ventilation, uh, there are lots of studies that show that people are healthier. So there's fewer sick days in a naturally ventilated building. There are huge benefits in terms of acoustics, because if you get to turn off the HVAC, that hum that is so unbearable in so many buildings is actually very quiet. Um, To the point that certain offices have actually found that it's a little too quiet. You know, I don't think it's a bad thing, but sometimes people like the white noise of the HVAC. Um, but you're definitely better off in terms of health, in terms of acoustics, um, as well as um, flexibility in terms of comfort. Um, people who are in naturally ventilated spaces and who have control over their own clothing, um, they are much more flexible. Psychologically, we are much more willing to adapt to colder temperatures if we have a window than if we don't, an operable window than if we don't. And, and if we're much more adaptable to, to accept warmer temperatures as well. 
And so if you think about it, when you go to the beach, perhaps you're in a house that isn't mechanically cooled and it's hot outside and it's also hot inside, but you're dressed up however you feel comfortable and you've opened all the windows. You're much more willing to to be in that space and you're much more comfortable in that space than if this were, let's say that house, the outside is at 80 degrees and inside you're at 84, but it feels comfortable. Um, it's very different that if you were going to an office that is sealed up and the set point were set at 84, that would be unbearable. And so through what is called adaptive comfort, people, research has shown that we are much more adaptable to what temperature we are inside if we have operable windows. And so this is, it just makes us more comfortable, but it also allows us to save energy. That's it really so much of it comes down to our connections to the natural environment. It, it, uh, yeah. it really is fascinating how, how many different aspects that plays into, uh, passive design. Let's, let's, yeah. you know, just sort of broaden the topic a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. uh natural ventilation, daylighting. Are there other components to, to passive design? Yes. So, well, other components there's, so there's, there's definitely, there's natural ventilation, there's playing with the mass. Um, I know we're right now as an industry juggling with the concrete, non-concrete piece of construction, but there are lots of existing buildings that have lots of concrete and um, heavily massive structures, um, like brick masonry, um, that actually allow you to store energy during the day and release it at night. So if you think about these old historic buildings that have three foot, four foot walls. If you go to Europe, right, you can walk into like the hottest day in the summer. You can walk into a public building that used to be a castle or whatever, you know, the Paris City Hall or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, where the walls are so thick, you wouldn't believe it. And the space inside the moment you walk in is nice and fresh and cool without any AC. And so that is associated to the thermally thermal massiveness of of a building, how much of that energy storage is in the walls. So using thermal mass as a strategy is very important these days that we're moving away from concrete uh, to reduce the amount of carbon of our buildings. Um, there's still opportunities to look at uh, thermal mass as a whole. And, you know, there's some buildings that use uh, face change materials as a strategy. Um, that will effectively act as a concrete wall or a masonry wall, but on a lighter structure. And that allow you to basically store energy that is generated during the day and then release it at night. And what that means is that you're effectively comfortable throughout the day without the need for supplemental heating or cooling. Um, Then daylighting is very important um, as well. The right amount of designing for the right amount of daylight is very important. We want to make sure that we can minimize our reliance on electric lighting, not just because, I mean, these days, lighting is becoming cheaper and cheaper thanks Mm -hmm. to LED. So the amount of energy we're actually using to light up our spaces is not that much. But research is categorically, um, has been categorical in terms of the fact that exposure to to daylight per se, to sunlight, is much more beneficial to us from a health standpoint than artificial lighting. Um, And so providing access 
in our buildings to daylight in general and to give that connection to the outdoors is very important to occupants. Um, in that sense, daylighting plays a huge part. The right amount of windows placed in the right place with the right daylight controls is very important to achieve an passively designed space that requires the minimum amount of heating and cooling, um, but also that provides as healthy and bright of an environment as possible. Uh, there's there are a few other aspects that are now more common when we think about passive design that I feel we weren't thinking too much about before, but we definitely need to credit Passive House um, in, in the kind of starting this effort as well as thinking about thermal comfort as part of passive design, right? One can design a building that is passive, lead cooled and passively heated year round but if it's not comfortable in every point right in in, in every occupied area then kind of defeats the purpose right and so right. you could say oh this building is passively cooled you know to 80 degrees or too hot well then it's not comfortable right um in the winter time in particular but also in the summertime come to think about it comfort associated to being close to glass is something that we don't necessarily talk too much about. And so while the air temperature in a space could be measured at the right temperature, so if, if we had a space at the air temperature that we want, we might still, if we stand close to a window, we might still feel much colder than at that air temperature in the wintertime and much hotter than that air temperature in the summertime. Right. Uh, partly because we're losing heat in the wintertime, we're losing heat to those windows. And so we feel colder. And in the summertime, you are gaining heat through those windows with the sun. And so you're feeling warmer. And so that explains why occupants of the same space think a fully glazed office. The occupants at the core will be very comfortable, say, oh, this is perfectly fine. And then the occupants of the perimeter will feel really hot. Or worse, which is what happens nowadays in our buildings, is that the HVA system will operate to keep the people in the perimeter of a very glazed building comfortable. So they will overcool the air so that you get overcooled air and then are able to withstand the sun. But the poor people who are at the core who are not getting warmed up by the sun end up right. freezing most of the time. And so that right. creates significant discomfort. And so whether in mechanically cooled and heated spaces or passively designed spaces, we need to think about how the glazing in the envelope impacts the other layers of comfort that we don't talk about that much because we tend to focus on air temperature only. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We talked a little bit about thermal com uh, comfort. Let's, t let's touch a little bit on visual comfort. Um, how do you how do you make it comfortable for building occupants when you're when you're engaged in daylighting? How do you make it comfortable for them without blocking out the natural light? That is a very good question. It's probably what ninety percent of my time goes into yeah, yeah, talking about how <laughs> perhaps we don't need that much glass. Um, the main challenge with visual comfort is our desire for transparency. Mm -hmm. um, in general, uh, residential buildings, office buildings, all buildings really are becoming very glassy. Um, and what that means is that we are, yes, we're getting great views. That's fabulous. Uh, views 
Uh, it's research shows that views improve the performance of occupants. Uh, mm -hmm. We are definitely getting daylight, but the problem is the moment you get direct sunlight, it becomes uncomfortable. And that means that you're going to deploy shades. And by deploying shades, you're going to lose the daylight that you originally had. Right. And so it's a, it's a balance, right? Um, exterior shading, a lot of the time, for instance, when I'm working on my projects, we talk about exterior shading and, and the focus tends to be, well, how much energy will the exterior shading save? In certain climates, exterior shading doesn't really save much energy. So in climates where we're heating and cooling, so we had hot summers and cold winters, adding exterior shading from an energy standpoint simply reduces your cooling but increases your heating. So from an energy use standpoint, you're really, if that's where you want to save the money, you're not saving it there. However, exterior shading that is well designed to promote visual comfort so to eliminate how many hours of the day do we have direct sunlight touching our screens, touching our desks, touching, reaching our eyes, reaching a whiteboard in a classroom, then all those hours that the exterior shading is successful at that is hours that you are not deploying shades. And so it is hours where you are actually maximizing your use of daylighting without having to block when it, when it is in excess. So it's critical that we change our approach with respect to how we treat exterior shading and how we treat amount of glass just from an energy standpoint. And we look at it from a productivity standpoint. Um, right. We did an analysis not long ago on a project that had exterior shading and the owner didn't want to pay for it, basically. Um, and so we were brought in uh, to answer the question of how you know, how do you approach this uh, from a wellness standpoint? And can we prove that this exterior shading is actually beneficial to the occupants? And what we found was that the exterior shading had been designed to reduce the glare in the space, which meant that occupants were going to be much more productive because they wouldn't have to deploy those shades that were going to cut down on the daylighting. And that increase in productivity, if you put numbers to it, Yep. is off the charts compared to how much you would save in energy. Absolutely. You know, it's hundreds of times Absolutely. because salaries are so high in general. Yeah. And so just a 1% is a 1% increase in productivity can be significant from a cost standpoint and can pay the exterior shading in no time. And so that approach is, is something that one needs to keep in mind uh, when designing for visual comfort. So again, Visual comfort, really, minimizing glare and maximizing daylight. So minimizing the time shades need to be deployed. A lot of the times we talk about the visual implications just from the outside in, and this is purely aesthetic, but nobody really likes their building to have shades deployed at different heights. Right. That are just Throws not great. That's not how it's rendered, right? Yeah. And so yeah. one sees a building how it's rendered with perfect occupancy, but the reality is that, you know, that's not how occupants are going to use it. You're giving occupants the control over the shades. They're going to use them to control their own visual comfort. And so if you see your own building with shades deployed 100% of the time, you did not design for visual comfort. And guess what? All that daylight that you designed for, your occupants are not getting it. And yet they're still having to pay for the cooling load of that, you know, of, of, of that solar gain. And they are having to pay for the heating load 
of the heat loss through that glass. And so lots of conversation about glass and optimizing it. I'm all for glass in the right places. Absolutely. Yeah, we have to talk about uh, light diffusing glass sometimes, but at some point, yeah. we'll save that for another. We'll save that for another one. Um, I want to. I want to switch to one of your quotes because this one was really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You should only need to look up to the building facades to know where north and south are. Explain to yeah. us what that means. That is so. I'll give credit to um, one of my PhD advisors, Les Norford. He taught us that in one of the classes, as in, you know, he just said it and it just stuck with me. And I have been feeling that we don't do that enough. But if you do, you look at old buildings, you actually can tell where North and South are. What does it mean? It means that at this day and age, when we understand that the sun is going to come out from the same place, Every single March 1st of every year from now for thousands of years, we should have already learned how to design for the sun and how to design to optimize that access to daylight without the the high contrast or the glare discomfort that I was talking about, right? And so if your facade is south facing and you're in the northern hemisphere, Mm -hmm. guess what? You are going to have direct sunlight. You Mm -hmm. are going to have direct sunlight that is high up in the sky. Normally, it's going to go from left to right, and it's going to be there from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. We know that for a fact before the building even exists, and it happens in every single south elevation in in the northern hemisphere, right? If you're in the southern hemisphere, the same applies for north, right? Mm -hmm. If you're in the northern hemisphere, the sun's going to come out from from the east and you will, well, the sun always comes out from the east, but you will need um, to think about low sun angles. Um, You'll need to think about low sun angles and how to handle that, right? Whereas if you are, um, have a west facing facade, you're going to have to think about what happens when the sun is setting. The sun will always set on the west, period. (laughs) It doesn't matter how you design your building, the sun will set on the west. So why are our solar control strategies not visible, <laughs> right? When we look up at a building, we should right. be able to see a similar type of shading on south elevations, almost no shading on north elevations, maybe a little bit if you're picky about low sun angles in the summer. We should, you know, and oftentimes we look up and we just see a glass box with nothing. So I can't tell where north and south are. Uh, and so it, it should be an indicator. We should be able to look up and know. And by looking at older buildings, you actually can tell where North and South are. And in many areas, uh, the vernacular act- architecture would maximize certain orientations for, you know, for amount of glass or amount of transparency, amount of windows and would minimize some others, right? You, you would be able to see that, but we can't see it nowadays and we should. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, Blaine Brownell uses the term conspicuously green, uh, conspicuously mm-hmm. green design, right? Uh, and that's right. A, that, that aligns perfectly. Okay. Let's talk about um, productivity benefits of thermal comfort. I watched uh, you speak at a, uh, in 2020 on an online panel um, yeah. sponsored by Technoform. Um, and, and you spoke about the productivity benefits of thermal comfort. What kind of payback can occupants expect to see 
by investing in the thermal, sorry, building owners expect to see by investing in the thermal comfort of their employees? So a lot. Um, the numbers and let me, I have the book right here, so I'm going to read it right away. This is the book everyone should read by okay. Joe Allen and John D. McCumber, uh, healthy buildings and how indoor space drive performance and productivity. Um, so all the numbers you can find in that book, um, it is a fabulous book. So I'm doing the pitch here for Joe Allen and John. Um, it is a fabulous book that really is changing the way we think about how design impacts productivity and how do we account for it financially? Um, the short answer to your question is significantly, there's research that shows that improved thermal comfort, improved visual comfort can increase an occupant productivity anywhere from 10 to 25%. Um, the Massive. studies that we've done, it's, it's insane. If you think yeah. about salaries again, right? Let's think of, you know, if you're paying 100 units and whatever currency it is a year, right? Mm -hmm. For a salary and you can have a 10%, right? You're already making a lot of money as an employer, right? Yep. If you have more productive occupants, they will also, uh, from a retainment standpoint, they will stay happier and they will, they'll be willing to stay with you if they work in a pleasant environment. How many of us are wanting to, to stay home these days? because we're not freezing. Finally, we're done freezing, right? Because we can work from home and I can set my own temperature. I can put, you know, if it's cold, I'll put blankets on and jacket, but a lot of the time it's too hot for most, but it's actually fine for me, right? And so comfort, thermal comfort makes me much more productive. When I walk into a freezing space, which is most offices in the US, I, can't stop thinking about how cold I am. Uh, the same happens to a lot of occupants and research proves that. Um, our studies actually, when we do this type of analysis, we assume a 1% productivity increase at a minimum because we know research shows anywhere from 10 to 25. Yeah. But I can already anticipate that if we were, I were assuming 25, someone would say, well, right, but that paper was done in a very controlled environment with, you know, students that came from this country. And so that doesn't apply to me. Right. So there is no paper that reports less than a 1% productivity increase. They right. all kind of start in the tens. Right. And so at least one, but I think it would be a safe assumption to say 10. Um, as long as you have visual comfort. So we were talking about thermally comfortable. You have to be thermally comfortable, but also not have the sun blasting on your face, right? So there is a combination of those. And in fact, research has shown that if you are com thermally comfortable, your potential to be more productive in a visually comfortable environment is much higher. So you get this wild card of being, so you get a higher leverage on being comfortable um, in, in a space where you're starting off being thermally comfortable. If you're on the flip side, if you're thermally uncomfortable, even if I made the space really visually comfortable, your potential to increase your productivity is actually not as high than if both of them align. So the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, truly. In, in that. that is correct. Yes. Yeah, the cross yeah. effect is significant. And so, yeah, lots of money there that we're not accounting for. I think the average North American building, uh, sorry, the average North American office space, the salary density is $500 per square foot per year. 
So well, there you go. quick math, 10% productivity improvement, $50, yep. $50 per square foot per year. Like that pays for the building in six years or something like that. It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I'll just clarify that there's certain things to keep in mind when we're talking about comfort that has to do with envelope design, yep. then you're really only focused on those occupants at the perimeter. Uh, if we're talking about thermal comfort in general, so not passive, but yeah. set points. Yeah. Regulating your set points to fit most of your occupants, which right now most set points are designed to make the, you know, the very non-diverse leadership happy, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is four people. Uh, if you actually made your entire team happier or your entire floor plate happy, right? Your company then and thermally comfortable, uh, then, you know, then from a set point standpoint, then you would be much more better off financially than you are right now when those three men are happy, but then the rest of the women in the floor plate are freezing. And I'm right. sure some men freeze too <laughs> yeah. at 70. I have to introduce you to uh, Stefano Schiavone. Does he works at oh, UC I know. Berkeley? We know one another. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. He, 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 he Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say he does a lot of work on individual comfort and 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 managing thermal comfort at the individual level. Uh, really fascinating uh, how little it takes to to manage individual comfort. Um. He does the research, so I'm not a researcher. And so all the numbers that I'm throwing out there are done by fabulous other people. One of them, Stefano. Okay. And uh, he and I got to collaborate when I was developing. When I was at Payette, we developed a um, comfort tool called, yeah. now commonly known, the Winter Comfort Tool, the or the Payette Comfort Tool. Yes. It's, a, it's a comfort tool designed to determine whether you need, whether the glazing that you're designing is going to generate uncomfortable conditions on the occupants. And... Uh, he was the only person who had done research on the draft component, which was is a big part of cold windows. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we got to collaborate a fair amount on that. Uh, I'm a big fan. He's fabulous. He's done so much for the industry. Yeah, so incredibly well spoken too. I, I'm taking some such complicated uh, ideas and, and making them uh, easy for everybody to to grasp. Yes. Uh, what, what a what a talent! I was going to ask you about the the Payette tool. Um, there we go. Is there anything more that that we you could talk about in, in uh, how that tool works, yeah. broadly speaking? Yes, yes, and I encourage everyone to check it out. Um, I think you can just Google Payette, P A Y E T T E, yep. and then Comfort Tool or Winter Tool, and and you'll have it pop up. The origin of that tool was um, the fact that architects uh, in our team. So I used to be part of the building science team at Payette, and um, our design team was very frustrated that um, they would suddenly find out that they needed perimeter heating in their buildings. This is, for context, the Payette tool is particularly useful in for for buildings in the in winter climates, mm -hmm. um, so where perimeter heating might be needed. And there was this frustration of how do we how can we take over the control of when we need perimeter heat or not? Because clearly it is in our control. If there were no window, we would need no perimeter heating. If there is a large window, we need perimeter heating. There is a point in between where you start needing it and stop needing it. And we're not really getting answers from the mechanical engineer on when that happens. Mostly right. because from an MEP standpoint, it's mostly rules of thumb, but that aren't really very well defined. Um, and so they asked us to come up with an answer, which led us into 
a research uh, a research path for two years, uh, where we got to talk to Stefano's team on the comfort side, and then we got to learn what phys it really engineers, mechanical engineers, and physicists had done in terms of research of how cold surfaces impact the indoor uh, environmental variable. So downdraft, how does downdraft mm -hmm. form along cold surface? Pure physics, they hadn't really thought about humans. And then Stefano's team had been thinking about humans without necessarily thinking about windows. And so we ended up, we were able to get enough variables from, from each end to plug them and be able to predict how large of a window will make you too cold. Um, we started off making an Excel tool that nobody was using because, you know, Excel and an architecture firm is not something that works out very well. Mm -hmm. And so then we thought, well, we could make it an internal tool. We had someone who was an outstanding web developer in the team uh, who was dying to put her hands to work. And so we developed this really cool tool uh, designed for architects to be very simple with a very robust algorithm in the background that does all the calculations. And then once we did it, we said, well, we could just publish it. You know, we could make this tool public given that other people would benefit from it. And so that is the tool. I highly recommend it. You can reach out to me if you have questions um, on it. There have been several papers written about it as well. So okay. you can check those out. Cool, for sure. All right, the, the last sort of canned question, and I, I ask everybody this one, what makes a great building? A great building mm -hmm. is a building where people are wanting to go there to spend time. I think that, that sums it up. Absolutely. Beautiful, comfortable, you know, it's not breaking the bank in terms of energy <laughs> use. Yeah. Right? It makes you happy. You want to be there and more people want to be there. A great building is a building that gets heavily used, that people love. I think that's the definition for me. Absolutely. That's wonderful. All right. Is there anything exciting going on at Airlet Studios or in your personal career that you'd like to share? Yes. Yeah, so they're both the same. Uh, Airlet yeah. started uh, just earlier this year. And so that is really uh, the baby in my life these days. Uh, I'm extremely excited that um, Alonso Dominguez, who is a former lab mate of mine, uh, who um, who then became a mechanical engineer by training and then uh, mm -hmm. did some consulting work uh, with me in the past as well, has joined me as a partner. Uh, and we are trying to break the mold as consultants. So we're doing the standard consulting. We do, of course, natural ventilation, of course, visual comfort, like you can get a sense of what we do, mm -hmm. uh, you know, modeling airflow through building CFD, which is our expertise. But we're also trying to break the mold in that we want to train anyone who wants to learn more about buildings, whether you are the competition, mm -hmm. you know, and your mm -hmm. staff needs more help, we want everyone to be better. And, you know, we've had people reach out to us and say, hey, natural ventilation is not my expertise. Would you feel comfortable training us? Yes. We need more people who know how to do it, right? If they're going to hire you anyway, you might as well know how to do it, right? Absolutely. If you are an architecture firm trying to start your own in-house group and don't know how to start and maybe need someone to train that first person so that you can be more independent and do more work in-house, by all means, we're very excited to to be training and we actually are training a fair amount of, of firms these days on that. And so the more we can spread the love, the better we'll be and the more 
the faster we will have great buildings. That is wonderful. Look, uh, congratulations on on the on, on the creation of Airlight. I did I did speak to Alonzo, if you remember. I did get to meet him. Uh, yes, not too long I know. Ago. Yes, yeah. yes. Anyway, wonderful. I, look, thank you so much for your time. This was really really cool. Um, I, I, and let's make sure that we stay in touch. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right, my pleasure. Take care.